let's see, the first one, I guess kind of a clarifying thing. Uh, most people probably don't think through why they believe in human rights. Um, a little narrative here. Maybe I'm just a simple country girl, but this would be hard to break down and explain. Could you, in simple terms, help me tell an average person why we should believe that all humans have rights and dignity? When I was in college at the University of Texas at Austin, I was in the band, the Longhorn Band. And as a member of the Longhorn Band, I was one of 300 that had to bedeck themselves in orange polyester for every single game. And when once we played at the, shall we say, say the sacred land of the Texas A&M University and College Station, I completed that game and proceeded to walk back to my vehicle wearing my orange polyester and Stetson hat. A gentleman approached from behind and said to me, excuse me, as if to pass me there in the parking lot and proceeded to grab my white Stetson and run off into the college station night. And in the moment, I was mortified. And then I began to ran in band shoes. I was doomed from the start. Why am I telling you that story? In that moment, no one had to tell me that I had a right to my Stetson. It was a moral intuition in my own head that it was there. And nobody had to say, you know, the idea of keeping your own Stetson finds its grounding in human rights back to the Middle Ages. It was just there. There was something about it that I felt. Now, does that mean I had rights? No. Uh, but I think we all have that, like as, as Keller talked about last week, a moral intuition, this moral feeling that we feel like when somebody is actually infringing upon us that we think is reasonably ours, that we naturally think that's a violation of all things, and not just because I want it to be so, but because it is so. His argument tonight is, you've got to have an answer for why you have that moral intuition. And there have been lots of upper ways in which people have tried to ground that basis for rights. None of them seem to work as a really justifiable, uh, comprehensive answer. The, the long and the short of why we have human rights is because we're made in the image of God. And therefore, we deserve to be treated with a dignity on the basis of having been made by one who is the author of all things. If you try to ground it in anything else, there ends up being a limit at which you can actually justify that claim. So the, why do I have human rights? Because I'm made in God's image. And that image means I have a dignity that has nothing to do with who I am what I believe, where I'm from, what my name is, or how much I have in my bank account. I have rights because I have dignity, and I have dignity because I'm made in the one and the image of the one who is responsible for the existence of all things. Which this links in well with what you were just saying. Someone has the question, what does that mean to be made in the image of God? Oh, boy. Uh, books have been written on that very question. And um, the, 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 the simplest answer and an incomplete answer is that we reflect part of the nature of God, that we share in features of his um, being, and therefore to, to, be an, to be in the image of God is to, to use that word in the verbal form, to image him. We are a reflection of him. We possess qualities and characteristics that he shares. Not entirely. We are not um, 
We are not immaterial beings, at least not in our physical state. We have an immaterial aspect, but we're not fully immaterial, uh, nor are we everywhere at all times like he is, nor are we eternal. There is a beginning for us. We have not always been. So there are many things in which we do not reflect his image, but there are aspects of him in which we do, namely, our, and, and this, is where, this is where you get a great diversity of opinion on uh, what, what constitutes our image, our imaging characteristic. Uh, is it that we create like he does? Is it that we possess uh, the capacity for righteousness? Is it like that? Or is it because we make choices like he does? Is it because um, we, we reason like he does? All of those things qualify as viable uh, candidates for what constitutes being in his image. But essentially it means we manifest um, aspects of who he is that we do so uniquely as opposed to other manifestations of life, animal, vegetable. Mineral isn't alive, but that doesn't image him either. Um, Looking at history, crusades, wiping out of Native Americans, slavery to name a few, it seems that Christianity often manifests to two of the criticisms of Christianity by postmodernists. One, claiming to have the answer to imperialism. Tim made it sound like the postmodern criticism is totally crazy. How do we separate the ideal of Christianity from reality as it often plays out in history? Wow, thanks for that one. I think you kind of answered your own question there. How do you separate your ideal from the reality? The, I think the, the first part of that answer is to understand that there is a model by which we make that claim, and then, unfortunately, too many examples of which we have failed badly at incarnating that claim. Uh, I think a postmodernist, you don't even have to be a postmodernist to be a critic of the way in which Christianity has, in, in some instances, manifested itself, sought to make its influence spread, and, and those criticisms would be viable because that form of influence came in the form of coercion or in the form of denigrating or um, disrespecting uh, certain aspects of the various cultures into which Christianity was introduced. And, and therefore, that criticism, I think, is, is, is quite valid. I, I don't think, though, that those who have that criticism can necessarily draw a tight linkage between what the gospel says and how it's been expressed. I think there are examples, to be sure. I, I, my previous pastorate was among um, many who had served for decades in other cultures to bring the gospel, and uh, some of them encountered a great deal of pushback because they had seen other missionaries in other settings, again, waltz into a culture and decide that the best thing for that culture was to adopt the very westernized version of what Christianity was, and therefore we're going to ignore everything that has um, uh, birthed and sustained your culture forever, and they found that some of that criticism to be valid, but in other instances, those missionaries just waltzed in and, and went in as learners and as servants and, and therefore tried to introduce Jesus in a way that was far more respectful of the culture into which they intru- were introducing um, Jesus. I don't think it follows that if I believe in Jesus and I seek to see him spread, that I will necessarily become a coercive or oppressive power wherever I go because I know that there are examples of just that very thing. At the same time, though, I I certainly call mea culpa on those who have felt like the only way to be faithful to what the gospel entails is to waltz into a culture and to try to paper over everything that they see is wrong with it and and try to um, rewrite or or to restart that culture, as it were. So uh, 
I, I think the I think the argument, I think the criticism holds. There's historical precedent for making that criticism. I just don't think it follows necessarily that where one is faithful to what Christianity propounds, that wherever it goes, it will necessarily be an oppressive course of force. That's that's Keller's kind of the last ten minutes of his talk is to say, if you'll look very carefully at what the heart of who Jesus is, it does not follow that a theocracy will necessarily manifest or that that's truly a faithful expression of what it means to believe in Jesus. Now, I know full well theocracies emerged in all sorts of places. I would just dare to, to maybe push back and say that theocracy is not necessarily the logical deduction or progression from a faithfulness to what Christianity teaches. So uh, the criticism holds. I just don't think you lay the most of the criticism at the feet of Christianity and its doctrine. I think you lay it at the feet of those who sought to um, see that influence spread by certain means that I think fall outside the bounds of what Christianity teaches. And I think that's what Keller's saying there at the end through Bauckham's article. If any of these questions don't satisfy you, that's why we, at the end, we say, come up and talk, because I love to talk more. Okay, it's, this is kind of a dialogue, but there's a limitation to it. Uh, someone just asked, what is totalitarianism? Totali- yes, thank you. As I understand Richard Bauckham's argument, which is, or rather, Francois Lyotard's argument, who is sort of the, the I don't probably the, the seminal figure in defining postmodernism, uh, that he would say that any grand truth claim, so for instance, any grand truth claim, let's put it in a fictional term, in Middle Earth, in Lord of the Rings, there's a whole culture built upon a whole certain set of premises, and that's Middle Earth. Um, the Avengers. There's the Tesseract, and there's this whole power source that's got all of this basis in, in worlds far and wide, and it's this whole idea that this is what holds all things together. Or in Star Wars, the Force. The Force is what uh, it surrounds us, penetrates us. Thank you, Yoda. It's, it's everywhere, right? And it's the thing that holds us and binds us all together. In every one of those fictional accounts, there's a kind of a, a grand story to explain everything. Um, that kind of impulse, which finds its way into literature and fiction because it's a natural human impulse, accounts for why there are these meta-narratives to try to explain all things. And so Marxism, capitalism, fascism, all fall into that territory. They all seek to answer the most important questions, and they all promise a certain utopia. So that's the kind of the argument. Um, Leotard's argument is that wherever that kind of meta-narrative is adopted— you have just opened the door for totalitarianism to waltz in. And a totalitarian government is to say, here's the one story. I'm the purveyor of that story. I have the answers to all things. You will submit unto my answers. And I will, in, I will entertain no alternative answers. And, and if you continue to persist in offering alternative answers, I will squelch you. So history is rife with totalitarian dictatorships throughout its history, and all of those totalitarian dictatorships rested on certain premises that they thought were airtight, that had all the answers, that admitted um, no resistance, and squelched all forms of it. That's a totalitarian government. And Leotard's saying, look at history. It's done it over and over again. And why? Because they all built on these meta-narratives. Well, then let's get rid of the meta-narratives. And you know one meta-narrative that also should be rid of? Christianity. 
because that that meta narrative has found its way to uh, not only spread but uh, justify imperialism and colonialism and all sorts of things. And look all the damage it's done. Let's rid ourselves of that. There's just no absolute truth. Let's just move on from there. And that's why at the end of, of Keller's talk, he's trying to say, if you look really underneath the hood of what Christianity is propounding, it's not offering all the answers. It's not promising a utopia apart from Jesus' return. And what was the third thing? <laughs> that's, that's funny, isn't it? Um, what? He empties himself. It's not, uh, it's, not, it's not an expression of influence through power. That influence is spread through weakness and service. And that's why Jesus demonstrates a non-totalizing meta-narrative. So totalitarianism is, we know it all. We're going to have all the answers, and anybody that offers dissent, I shall squelch. I hope that was where you were trying to get to, maybe answered more than you wanted. There's still kind of a thread of, I think, what people see and what they see in Christians and how it's lived out. Um, So I don't know if more you can say on that, but one... um, Keller ended um, highlighting that Christianity is a non-oppressive absolute truth, that if Christians become oppressors, they are rejecting what is the heart of their faith. But why have so many religious people, including Christians, done so much injustice? And kind of tied to that is, if Keller says they poorly understand Christian faith, then is that indicative that it's not a successful belief system? The, the first question is a, is a respectful pushback of his argument that Christianity is not a totalizing, oppressive, grand story, meta-narrative. Um, and uh, read the first part again. I don't want to, sorry. Read the first question, part of the question. Uh, Keller ended highlighting that Christianity is non, a non-oppressive absolute truth. That if Christians become oppressors, they are rejecting what is the heart of their faith. But why have so many religious people, including Christians, done such injustice? Um, I'll tell you why. It's because they're human. And, I'll, I'll, and that's not, I'm not trying to be curt. But I'll just say this. Look, um, you walk into Northern Ireland and you walk through Belfast and you see all the murals on the buildings from the time of troubles during the awful... Um, war, if you will, between Protestants and Catholics. That's how it's characterized. It's a religious war. If you dig a little deeper into what that's about, it has nothing to do with whether or not uh, the Pope is in charge or not. It has everything to do with power and territory and rule. And religion can just serve as a great proxy or a great um, motivating force in order to enforce what? My will. Do you really think that they're debating about whether uh, Mary should be worshipped when they send firebombs into elementary schools in Belfast? It's not about Mary. It's about power. And therefore, uh, with, with all due respect to the person who asked the question, to be sure, religious forces have been the source of oppression and violence but there have been a lot of irreligious forces that have done the exact same thing. And I don't know, I don't need to tally up for you 
the millions of deaths that occurred at the hands of those who were outright and outspoken atheists. Just look at the 20th century. It's not about religion. It's not about irreligion. It's about being human. And whenever humans get together and they start to have a a clash of desires, well, then violence erupts because somebody wants to gain power. I don't let Christians off the hook for that. I don't let Christians off the hook when they resort to that. I just, again, I may may have been a broken record here, I don't lay it at the feet of Jesus as to why too many Christians, professing Christians, feel like the only way to exercise their faithfulness or their influence in spreading the kingdom is through coercive, manipulative, uh, denigrating, um, uh, undignifying means. It's, it, it is across the board. I just don't think the alternative is to rid yourself of all religious faith and to adopt an irreligious perspective or a secular version. Because, once again, just turn the clock back 19 years or 50 years and look at how secular forms of regimes were as guilty of perpetrating that kind of very oppressive, violent, um, uh, murderous force in the world. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what's, what's the common denominator um, in secular regimes and religious regimes doing the same thing. It's that they're human. That's our problem. And one that needs to be redeemed. And if you discard the idea of a transcendent truth to which everyone is in submission, then you will get the same outcome. At least with Jesus, I still have a voice whispering in my head, you're not God. Um, kind of after that, we've highlighted a lot of failures of the church and people not accessing the resources of Christianity. Does sacrificially, does loving sacrificially like Christ entail that I would be worded here, treated like a doormat? But what, what does that look like to love sacrificially and would that mean that you are treated? So um, in this church, we've been preaching through Jesus' probably most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. He, there's probably sermon things that he said sermonically on a number of occasions, but Matthew just compiled all those sayings and remembered that Jesus would often like to speak from mountaintops because for all sorts of reasons. But one of the texts in there is the text that many people are familiar with, whether you know of Jesus or of Christianity or not. That's where Jesus says, uh, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn in the other one as well. And in a moment like that, uh, one could interpret that in such a totalizing way as to say you, uh, the point is to be a doormat, to borrow the, the, the inquirer's language, that your, your job is simply just to take it. Um, I, I don't think Jesus is arguing for that kind of very angular, um, two-dimensional way of uh, understanding what it means to be um, oppressed by another. Um, if I am being harmed by another, then uh, it does them no good for them not to know that I think that they're harming me. Uh, to, to, to be called a doormat is to just somebody let, walk, let them walk all over you um, because you think that's virtuous. If anything, it's 
for their good that you would want to let them know, this is harmful to me. I hope you would stop. I'm not going to harm you in return. But I'm also um, not going to just sort of see, be totally silent before you because it actually doesn't do you any good to keep harming me. In fact, it's bad for you to be bad to me. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's not simply saying, okay, assume the position, be in a doormat. He's actually saying, uh, to borrow the Simone Vey quote I used actually in that sermon, don't just do something, stand there. Don't, don't run in the corner and, and cower, but also don't put up your dukes and say, oh yeah, as Archie Bunker puts it, uh, uh, do unto others before ye, they do unto you. Um, that'll be in this week's sermon, actually. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the objective in a moment like that is not to be a doormat, but actually to, to actually vie for their good by saying unto them, this is harmful, and for you to persist in that is actually harmful to you. To act unkindly, uncharitably, that's bad for you. Cut it out. But I'm just not going to punch you back. So to be sacrificial, to, be, to refuse to uh, act with recrimination, um, to, uh, to, to put up your dukes and to fight fire with fire, uh, that's an act of love unto them um, by saying, cut it out. It's not good for you, but I'm just not going to try to return in favor. So no, not a doormat, but also no... You hit me, I'll sh- I'll don't, you're not to be a bouncer either. I think we have time for one more. Um, if the idea of human rights comes from Christianity, as he claimed and talks about in the talk, why in the first 1,500 years of church's history did the church not have it? Why did the church not have it for the first 1,500 years if, according to, to Keller's argument there, the scholarly consensus felt like that human rights or the idea of it derived from Christian Europe in the Middle Ages? Um, I think what Keller means by that is that when people started even using that phrase, human rights, the, the concept to crystallize there into a phrase, I think that originates in the Middle Ages. I don't think, though, that the idea of human dignity waited until the 16th century for it to be a premise in people's minds. In fact, I would say that that dignity is from Genesis 1. It's much older. No, they weren't. I mean, you're not going to find anything in Genesis, the Revelation, that says anything like human rights. Like, what? What? But I think that category is implicit. Uh, To say that anyone's made in the image of God is to assign to them a value and a worth and a dignity that, that is not tied to one's capabilities, qualities, contributions, or morality. It's, it's there because of who, who, from whose hand they come. So I wouldn't say that, that human rights were absent from Christian thought or Christian practice until the 16th century. I, w- I think the argument is uh, that idea kind of crystallized around that phrase around that time. And... Uh, you know, for instance, you know, people really push back against Christians because they think that that was a, that, that Christianity allowed slavery to persist. And if you think that there was, if there was any uh, faith that should have, you know, eradicated slavery in the first century, it would have been Jesus, right? Because if all men are created equal, then why in the world is we still talking about slavery here? And yet, 
one of the early church fathers by the name of Chrysostom, in a, in a set of uh, sermons he gave on the book of Ecclesiastes, he's the first one to start talking as a Christian that uh, slavery is absolutely antithetical to what it means to believe in God. Because slavery means you're putting a human in the same categories you're putting a cow. And humans and cows, they share some things in common, but they're not the same in the eyes of God. And therefore, he starts to make a more explicit argument in the 4th century, and ironically, in, in all things, of a sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes, that slavery is, is at, entirely at odds with what it means to, to walk in the way of God or, or in, in the way of the Son of God. So, um, the, the phrase... Um, um, the, the, the authorship, the writings, the, the, the ink that was spilled on the whole idea of, of human rights, yeah, that, that sort of catches fire around then. But I, I wouldn't say that the church didn't believe in the idea of human rights, even if they're, they're not using that phrase um, in that time. Um, obviously, you just point to any moment in Jesus' life, especially when he comes to the defense of people who in the eyes of the law were worthy of punishment. And Jesus speaks for their condition and extends to them grace and dies to say that we're all in need of that exact same grace. Why? Because of anything in us? No. But by virtue of the fact that we're made in his image and by virtue of the fact that he comes to us in grace. And so I think that's just more implicit in the, the DNA of Christianity um, that finally finds this phrase later on in the 16th century about human rights.